and welcome to another edition of Veterans to Success. And today I've got the lovely Robin Lockwood with me. Hello, Robin. How are you doing? Hi, Joe. Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Fantastic. And it's great to have you with me. And and you know, we've 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 gone through your career before. We we're here today, uh, and it's really fantastic. And I'm looking forward to just revealing slowly your career as you know there's no big introduction because we just go through your life story during this interview so let's jump straight in and find out what happened before your military career right so start wherever you want to so before my military career i grew up in a single parent household very supportive of everything i did um it was just me and me, my mum and my sister for a while. Um, had a stepdad in for a few years and he was a big uh, part of my life. Uh, he taught me a lot of things, bless him. He was a good, uh, good guy. Um, yeah. But mostly it was just me, my mum and my sister. Um, again, so supportive of everything I wanted to do. Um, I was a little bit troubled as I grew up, I would say. Um, nothing too serious, but just really didn't like the education system just wasn't for me. Uh, sitting in a classroom nine to five was just the worst thing I could ever think of. And I think that's what started off my journey of knowing that I don't want to be sat in an office. Um, yeah. It really wasn't for me. Um, but from that, I did get to experience uh, the military preparation college, what I think. No, 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 no tell me, because I know what ha what happened or a little bit more information about that. So you, you've discovered that you don't really like school and maybe uh, you're not the ideal pupil, maybe it could be said. So there came a point where I don't know whether it was the head teacher or your tutor teacher. What sort of conversation did you have with them? So I started off my secondary school journey because that's really where the problem started yeah. uh, in an all girls school, um, Catholic strict um school that just didn't work out so from year nine i moved to uh inspire enterprise academy what it was called it's not a thing anymore but it's there now um where i had a group of really supportive teachers and they did try to teach every student in the way that they needed to learn um but it came down to it that my mom myself uh, my head teacher and a tutor would you say um came down to it and said this isn't working out um we're more than happy for still her GCSEs here but we do think that another road of possibility is better for her um I had interest in joining the military anyway so for them it just made more sense for me to go get some more experience in that end um, as the schooling system was just not working and I think it would have worked out better for everyone. The arguments in the morning were just not worth it anymore. It was that transition for me into the military preparation um, college, but I was very lucky that I was still able to do my GCSEs at that school because um, that was the worry. My mum still wanted me to complete all my GCSEs, no matter the grades I got, just to say that I had done them, what was very important. So as I made my transition over to the military preparation college, um, it really was an insight. I wouldn't say it's a complete textbook of the military, um, but it was a good insight for the kids that were there, I have to say. It was folding your clothes to A4, 
Uh, it was lots of stretcher runs. It was having to be where you're supposed to be five minutes before. Um, there was a lot of drill involved. Um, it was army drill, though, not Royal Navy. So that was a bit bit wrong for me. But <laughs> I mean, it was so enjoyable, was, to say the least. Yeah, so someone from the army would probably say, so it was proper drill then, right? Yeah, and I would say definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good insight. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I mean, learning, all, learning those sort of skills at the age of 14, were you? A pretty, yeah, so a, it was 14, pretty 15. Important. Yeah, pretty important to get you back on track. Yeah, and the fizz was definitely really good, um, getting everyone ready for their mile and a half and the strength tests and all of that. So, And the application process also into the military. They were very supportive that way just to ensure that everyone was getting to their interviews and they all had suits that they required to go. And, yeah, so it was very good in that sense. But thank you for that. So that was quite insightful uh, of the head teacher and your tutor and also very supportive of your mum, for them to get together and think, right, if something's not done, Robin's going to go off the rails here or there's a good chance that she will. So what we need to do is sell, send her to a military prep school, which will at least prepare her for the discipline side of life, I suppose, and get getting a regime and a, and and a behaviour sorted out, which which then becomes regimented with a clear structure. Yeah, so it's like my mum said; she was always always knew that I would succeed in no matter what I went into but her job was to enable me to succeed to the best of my ability. Yeah. And for her, she knew being in standard schooling system was just not the right place for me to be to enable me to succeed. And she would do anything in her power, no matter what, to ensure that I am where I'm supposed to be in life. Um, but yeah, she really was a good egg in that sort of sense. Bless her. Brilliant. Oh, that's fantastic. So... So you do all this preparation and then you decide to put the prep into practice yeah. and join the Royal Navy. Yeah, so at 15 and nine months to the day, my application went in to join the Royal Navy. Um, I originally wanted to go in as a diver, but I was too young, so I joined the mine warfare sector branch. Um as it was, they said, it was a transitional uh, branch into the uh, diving community, but they were not exactly right. It was mostly numbers, but I'm glad I did join Mind Warfare World. <laughs> yeah, and Mind Warfare is, well, being in a, in a ship is, sh is the sharp end anyway, but Mind Warfare definitely is the sharp end because you want to get, you want to have a good day at the office, really, don't you, every day. Yeah, every day's got to go well. <laughs> um, but it is very, it's a high-paced world. Um, you deploy a lot. And they told me that before I went in. They were they did say that this branch does go away a lot. Um, but as a small child or early adult anyway, I was very keen to do so. I had nothing holding me back. I had no partner or family holding me back in that sense. So I was ready to go. Ready and wearing. Right. So I, I'm interested 
because I, I've I've worked with a lot of females when I was in when I was in the military, and and I know that you've all obviously got the gender difference now in in the in the army. You can just go out and go miles away if you just want to get away for a while. On on a ship, it's not entirely the same, is it? It's not entirely the same, no. So you can't just go off wandering miles just to get away from everyone. And especially in the mine warfare world, it's very small crews. You're talking about 40 people. Um, So when you're at sea for long periods or you're deployed, these are the people that you're going to have to be with for sometimes near and on nine months. It it is what that is. Um, And don't get me wrong, some things can get heated when you're around them people for a long period of time. Um, but when it comes down to it, everyone is good. You know, the conversation will always be flowing. The banter's always there. The morale's always there. Don't get me wrong. People in the military can complain about anything and they'll always find something, but it's something you bond over at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But everyone is always very supportive. Um, You know, there's people that will always be going through hard times whilst you're away whether it's personal or it's something at home or they're just not enjoying themselves right now. Um, but everyone does come together in the end and go, it's going to be all right. You know, it's that pat on the back. It's that we're all in this together. You know, we've got to be where we are now. So. Good. It's very and so you're <laughs> in, in basic training. Let's, let's go back to your basic training uh, phase one and two. You're 16, you walk into the training camp. What's going through your mind? Oh, so I'll take you back a minute there, Joe, if you don't mind. So for me, it started on the train to rally, uh, HMS rally. Um, And I'm not going to lie, I don't think I'd ever caught a train before that. So that was another milestone that I'd had. (laughs) Um, But I got on the train, um, I got off in Plymouth. And I was met by a, a leading hand. He was stood at the side with um, all of his documents. And he was like, you, you're for HMS Rally. I was like, yeah, suitcase bigger than me. Um, <laughs> and I got onto this coach and everyone looked the same. Everyone was scared. Um, don't get me wrong. There was a little bit of excitement, but it's the unknown isn't it no one really knew what they were getting themselves into um and at 16 years old I was like what have I done here but okay let's do this I'm here um got off the coach at the other end and just started meeting everyone that we were going to be spending the next god knows how many weeks together um and the navy do it in ways where there's more so the mine warfares will go together as well as the rest of the warfare branches. So you at least have that in common. You've got people going with you from first phase to second phase to then um, your initial bases. So the friends that you do make in basic training are the friends that do carry with you for years to come. So that is nice. And I think it was very important for me to be able to meet these people. And I was with a group of younger people as well. So there was another 16-year-old and there was another 17-year-old there as well. So at least we had that 
together as well because there are different rules and basic training for under 18s as there are over 18s even though you're in the same group of people and you know it's looking back i joined when i was 18 because my father wouldn't sign the papers he said you'll never stick it never stick it which i did actually but i i was on the starting blocks like you when i was 17 waiting to sign the application to get in which you'd already done 16 though you're a, you're a nip of a lass, aren't you? And then you you go and HMS Rally, this massive organisation, and yeah. there's you, 16, with a suitcase that's bigger than you. Uh, and how do, how were you treated by the director staff, the DS? So don't get me wrong, they're intimidating, they're scary, they're supposed to be. Um, it's that crash course into the militarisation they're not there to be your friends. They're there to teach you what you need to know to be able to succeed in the basic training. But they are nice people too. Yeah. They are down to earth. They are still people. And I think at 16 years old, you are still a child. And yeah. they did understand. I, I don't know if I got lucky or if that's everyone involved. Um, but... I know from my experience that the under-18s were looked after in the sense that, yes, they were treated the same, but they would come up and be like, are you okay? You know, it's not always easy. And I think there there was people over the age of 18 there. I I think under the age 21, you're not overly an adult, are you? No. You know, you're still... Even though you may think you are, yeah. But you're really not. You might be able to buy a beer... But you're really not, are you? You <laughs> you are still going to be like shock to the system. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I think it was good for me. And I think it was good for most of the people there. I was lucky in the sense that I started basic training and I finished on the date that I was supposed to finish. Um, there was no backtrack for me. Um, and I think that did me well. I just needed to get in do my militarization, do my marinization, um, and get to where I needed to be. And from that, I learned massive about myself as yeah. well. Um, and it was good. That was where I knew as I was in rally, that's where I needed to be at that time. Oh, that's great. And I'm so pleased you had a good experience. You finish at HMS rally and then you get your first posting, don't you? So after HMS rally, uh, I was off to phase two, um, so my mine warfare branch training, um, and that was in HMS Collingwood. Right, and and just just let me check on that. So phase phase one is like the the standard standard role of militarisation, getting used to military, just the same as in the army, you get infantry training. Phase two is then is then when you move on to your specialist training, isn't it? Yeah. So phase one is where everyone goes. No matter where you are in the military, everyone goes there, unless you're an officer. Um, You do your basic training, you pass out, um, have a great day, and then you go on to your phase two, what is your branch training. So if you're an engineer, if you're a mine warfare, if you're a weapon engineer, you'll all go off to your separate uh, bases and you'll learn your uh, branch there. Okay, thank you. 
So you get you you go for your warfare training for phase two, which takes you to. Uh, so finished my phase two training, and then I was off to my first uh, station, as you said, um, and that was Faslane for me, all the way up into Scotland. So I'm born and bred in the in Scotland. Yeah, I'm born and bred in Southampton, so I was going the other end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Faslane's about an hour north of Glasgow, yeah. so uh straight on that plane from Southampton Airport all the way to Glasgow. Um I was lucky so I went from basic to phase two and to Faz Lane with a group of people. Um so that was good. We all got to the airport together and then we got onto the coach to Faz Lane. Um and that's where it became real I think. Faz Lane is a big base um with a lot of people um and it really is that distinction between the real military and the not you know when you're learning and training it's still a school environment um and when you get to wherever you're supposed to be you are you are a bit more of an adult now you know they're they're trusting you a little bit more they've uh put all that effort into you and now you've just got to make it work and and yet you're still 17 Really? Oh yeah, still seventeen at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it must have been a comfort to you to be still with some of the guys that you were in training with, though. Yes. Yeah, it is a comfort, and it is a good way that they do it, just to mm. ensure that you're not going. You, no one would ever go anywhere alone, other than joining your crews per se. You're still going around together. That's good. So you're you're at Faz Lane now, and what's happening with the next phase of your naval career? Um, so from that, we've done some gunnery courses to qualify us onto ships. Um, and for me, as under the age of eighteen, um, I was still freshly seventeen, I think. So I was just day running on ships. I was going joining a ship, going out for the day. Um, just kind of getting into the swing of things um, and keeping busy and just offering support where I could offer support. I was brand new, didn't really know a lot, so I don't know if I was much support, but I was definitely there, so that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is that you were there, which is the main thing. Yeah. So, so whereas someone in on land in Civilian Street might be making cups of tea, you might be swabbing the deck or at sea in the rough and the smooth of the channel and and the English and Irish sea, wherever you were sailing. So that must have been a great experience for you. It really was. Um, just to get on that ship and to sail out, even if it was just for the day, it was still such a new experience for me. Um and with the rough seas, they came and they they go. Do you know what I mean? But I do love being on the water, um, yeah. and it really was a good time. Um, <clears throat> don't get me wrong; there were struggles within this period of not having a crew per se, because you're always that outsider. Almost, you yeah. know, you've got that forty people on that crew that have spent every day together and you're just going in for a day and then you're going on to another crew for a day. Um so just before my 18th birthday I got um put on to crew two. 
Right. Okay. Um, the ship was in refit at the time, and I was joining them to go into a assessment period. So before you deploy on any ship, really, you do an assessment period. It's either a small assessment period or it's a bigger one, uh, depending on your deployment length. Um, so, yeah, so just for my 18th, went on, um, joined the crew finally, um, and off I went. That was where my real <clears throat> my warfare journey started. And I was freshly 18, thinking I was the adult of the world. I was absolutely fine, and I knew everything. <laughs> yeah, well, well, of course you would. I mean, you knew everything that you needed to know about my warfare. You knew everything you needed to know about the ship that you were on, and you were the master of communication with all the crew. Yeah. <laughs> it really I, was. And I look back now and I laugh at myself, but I can, you know. I yeah. can honestly laugh. I mean, I mean, the thing is, though, I, I recognise that in myself and, and in so many people, in fact, pretty much every everyone, because... When you're that age, you know everything about everything. I, I, I've got sons who've been that age, and and they know everything about everything, and I just sit back and chuckle. Uh, I mean, they know quite a bit because I've passed it on to them just the same as your mum did, and then and then your DS staff. The fact is, though, that there's still an awful lot to learn, isn't there? So, what did you find when you went on your first mission, if you like, in? The mine war mine warfare department, which is a pretty so, special, pretty specialist unit. They are a specialist unit, hundred percent, and they don't get enough credit in the navy world. But I will shout for them. Um, they spend a lot of time away, and as I joined Crew Two, that really came apparent. Um, you especially from because I was from down south there was no getting home for weekenders all the time because you'd finish late on a Friday and have to be home well back on ship anyway by early Sunday to be able to go on to your next period of what you were doing so you do spend a lot of time away and I was looking forward to it you know I that's why I joined I joined the military to experience the world and travel and I was very lucky to do so. So I would say after my first initial period of assessment, so we'd all passed, we'd all passed our firefighting, our gunnery, um, all of our flood systems and everything like that. So we'd all passed, well done, off you go to your deployment. Um, and it was actually the Baltics deployment was my first one. So we got to go round the Baltics and the Mediterranean um, and we were clearing key routes. That was our job. So we go under with um, submersible vehicles and clear the way, as you would say, of mines. Um, and it's like you said, every day has got to be a good day. Um, if we don't find a mine, it's a better day. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it really was that experience and exposure into the real world for me and the attitude of I know everything died very quickly because yeah. I didn't know everything. And sometimes I just wanted to be at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but I think that's natural. And a lot of people felt that way um, who I was on board with as well. So, And and we also covered the fact that you were, pr- you were proud, and so you should be, there weren't that many females in the warfare team, were there? Um, no. So the mine warfare world as a whole is very small as it is. Um, and I was on board with two other females at the time. No, three, actually. Um, and one of them didn't go, to, didn't deploy with us. But in the mine warfare world, there was, as I joined, there was one petty officer female, one Achillic female, and then a few ABs as I joined. So, yeah, I don't know what happened there with the balloons. <laughs> no, and that, that was probably... Uh, fortuitous those blues needed to come in when uh, exactly and if you're listening to the audio if you're listening to the audio podcast what happened there on the screen some balloons came flying up which were well not flying in the in the alarmist way they just were floating weren't they and it looked it looked great so um so the females there's not many in there now how did that make you feel and what sort of relationship and i don't mean i don't platonic relationship i'm talking about relationship with with the guys how did that work what was the dynamics the chemistry right because because you're a female right so you can't do things or maybe that's what a misogynistic person would say but i don't believe that so and you give me some great feedback on the relationships you developed with the guys on the on the ship so how was that for you I think it's like anywhere, to be honest, Joe. So when you go into a field that is majority men, um, females always have this thing inside them that they've got to perform to the exact same performance as a male um, because you can't show that weakness almost, that you can't do things that they can do if you're going into a male-orientated role. Um, so for me, it was very much like that at the beginning. Um, I just needed to prove myself. I can be as big and bully and everything as the men that are stood next to me. I have no worries. Um, but there are certain things in the world, you know, that females can do better than men and men can do better than females. It's just that is what it is. Yep. And that realisation came to that doesn't make you any weaker. That doesn't make you any less of your role. That doesn't make you any less successful. It just means that you do things differently and that's fine. Um, But I was very lucky in the sense of my crew, especially the first one, that there were no bad experiences between the males and females on that ship. Um, You know, you spend a lot of time together on these ships and you get to know each other very well. Um, And friendships form and some of the friendships that you'll form are beautiful and they will carry on with you down the line. Um, And it's great, you know, and it's that support and that I don't care if you're a female, you know, it just is what it is. We're all here to do a job. Um, And it is very much like that. And I was very lucky because I know that not everyone gets that um, almost equal playing field. which is a which is a great way to be, and and when I was when I addressed it as oh you're a female, that's not my opinion per se. That is what I've seen in my military career. For me, 
I'm, I'm exactly the same with you. I'm on board with you. I'm not bothered whether you're male, female, what colour you are, what religion, anything like that. I want to know that you can do the job and if I need my back covering, you can do it. And if you need your back covering, I'll do it for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, and I think that's the most important thing. And I was very lucky, like I said, to experience that. Um, and I think it's important to go into the military now, especially to in today's world, that it is more like that. You know, there is a lot more, as long as you can do the job, I don't care who you are, you know, yeah. And that's honestly how I think it should be. And I was in that lucky period where I do think it was changing. Um, Because obviously people that I have spoken to that were in the military a lot uh, longer than me, they Mm. didn't always necessarily have that easy start. No. You know? (laughs) And and I've I've been speaking to, I've had the good fortune to speak to other females on the podcast from various arms, Army, Navy, Air Force, the more senior they are, they've been in longer, obviously, and, and years ago, it, it wasn't like it is now, where, where it was sort of female, male, and there was a clear uh, differentiator. Now I'm pleased to say it's not exactly the same. So you, you've done your Baltic tour, you're on... You've also done some tours in Bahrain. When you go on a tour, how long are you at sea for? So as my warfare ships, we don't stay at sea for masses of time at um, at once. Um, we tend to max out at about 14 days, where we then go alongside, uh, restock and refuel. Uh, we do have the capability and the ability to stay out for longer because um, we can refuel and stock at sea um but during our baltics trip mainly you're going around with um germany you're going around with lots of different nato um countries and you all go out together you uh do my warfare and dive and then you follow each other to certain countries and then you all go off all restock fuel all get back on and then all go off together so it is a very much of a it's almost a community deployment, as you could say. It's just yeah, all yeah. NATO going around together, um, ensuring that all of our drills are correct um, and we all can work together in times of need. So what did a day look like for you, a typical day when you're searching for mines? Uh, so when we are in inactive mine warfare, uh, we will do... Uh, defence watches we call them so it's a six on six off rotation Um, and on your six on you'll be either in the uh, operations room um, on the sonars and then you'll be on the back end dealing with the sea fox the autonomous vehicle Um, so that's your rotation for six hours really you stare at a screen uh, going up and down the lines, as we call them, in a small area to ensure that we have cleared the whole area. Um, and you then invest, say, if you found something that looked a bit abnormal, a weird shadow or anything in that sense, you would mark it, investigate it, send the sea fox down, and then a decision would be made if it is a mine or if it is something else. Um, 
what would need to be done, whether that's the uh, other sea fox going down and clearing it, or if that's the divers going down and clearing it um, themselves. And the sea fox is the submersible vehicle, isn't it? Yeah. And and being a former bomb disposal operative myself, I work with uh, Navy divers who are bomb disposal trained. And I'll tell you what, I would rather do the bombs on the land than the stuff in the sea because the stuff in the sea is really deadly. Uh, and without giving anything away, it's top secret. Uh, yeah, I'd leave that guy. I'd leave that to your guys. Yeah. And it is very cold and it's very miserable at times, um, especially when you are in the Baltics. You know, sometimes I do feel sorry for them, but it is always a running joke that, you know, you can't feel sorry for the divers. Off they go. Um, but they do sometimes get hammered, I have to say. You know, they'll be... Because when they're off watch, if they still get called to station to go diving, they still have to get up. Um so they can be very tired um, and they get worked a lot sometimes, but sometimes they don't also. I'd like to put that on. <laughs> and six hours on and six hours off, continuous, is a pretty gruelling timetable. And, I mean, when you're on, you've got to be on it as well. So there's no daydreaming or anything like that. It's got to be on it, hasn't it? Yeah, most definitely. Um and sticks on, sticks off. It does. It can get tiring because you still have to get everything done in your normal day. You still got to eat. You still have to shower. You still have to do your washing. You know, so there's still lots of things that have to still be done. Um, yeah. The whole world doesn't stop, sadly, just because we're in defence watches. So yeah. But once you get in a rhythm, you know they can be enjoyable. You can work it very well. Um, some people will do fizz and exercise whilst they're off watch as well, just to try to keep their mental fitness as well as physical fitness up because not seeing daylight can sometimes mess with you. Yeah. And the six hours off, as you say, isn't off at all. It's you got to get other stuff done as well as sleep. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. So you've done a few tours now, Bahrain and the Baltics, uh, and, and you're a bit of a, not an old hand, but you're certainly an experienced hand. And I, su I suppose you've seen other people come in from training as well and, and probably mentored, coached them because what goes around comes around and because you had a good experience, you want to help others have a good experience, wouldn't you? Yeah, most definitely. Um would say I had a little bit of a rocky road when I first started because I thought I knew everything like we went through. Um, and that's not the best attitude to have. And it's not the like, most liked attitude, I have to say. So I had a few people beating that out um, just to say, look, you don't know everything, but we're here to teach you. Um, we understand you've gone through training, but that's the bare basics of what you need to know. Um, so... I hang, hung around a bit and it took me a while to get my uh, task bit done. Um, once you get your task bit done, you can be eligible for promotion after that. Um, so it took me about a year to get that done. I was having a jolly, to be honest. I'm not going to lie. I was just enjoying myself, going to new countries and I was freshly 18. So I definitely had a beer or two. Um, uh, and I was in the big world, you know, I was in the, the big boys world and I was like I, I was still a child I will openly admit that um yeah. and I was still in that mentality um but I had a big boys wage and I had a lot of fun traveling so 
it did take me a while, but I also don't regret that either. Um, I had a good time. So once I completed my task book, obviously other people came through and it was all that teaching them because they also think they know everything. So it's a, it's a cycle. So I realised it wasn't just me. Actually, this is very normal. <laughs> and thank you for your honesty. And you must have had a bit of a chuckle, actually, because you probably would have seen yourself in them as well, or at least some of yourself. Yeah, most definitely. Mostly when the youngers came through. So sometimes we had new blokes on board that had just come out of training and they were 34 years old. Um, right. So, you know, they had their head screwed on a little bit more than the younger ones. But it was quite nice to see the younger ones come through and just say, oh, I was like that. And then I would go to my clicks next to me and go, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sorry, I was like that. Um, and I kind of still am. So, you know, but we're growing. <laughs> oh, um, yes, yeah, so you, you must have had a, a, a bit of a laugh about that as well. Good. Yeah. Most definitely. Right. So, so you you're coming along as uh, an able sea woman, and everything's going great. And then something happens, doesn't it, that maybe puts your career in doubt? Yeah. So, at this point in my career, I'd just been put on for promotion, the signal. So I was coming off the crew to go on to my promotion courses um, and I had completed my mind warfare promotion course and all that I needed to do was uh, the leadership side. Right. So at this time I was AB2 star um, and I was just waiting to go on to the leadership side. I'd done all my gunnery courses that I needed to do. So it was, yeah, you're really, you're nearly there. And I was like, okay. So at this point in my career, I had decided that I actually wanted to do my 22 years. I was ready and I wanted to promote up the ranks and follow the single females that had done it too. So obviously they, we had one PO who was now going chief and we had one cook that was now going PO. So I was hoping to take that spot for, to be uh, the leading hand in that role. Um, PO, PO being petty officer. Petty officer. Yeah. Sorry. And a cook is actually leading hand. So Sorry about the... No, it's um, okay. It's all right. Um, I was, I so, was yeah, just yeah, checking in with you that my understanding was right, yeah. Yeah, you were right. You were supposed to. Um, but, yeah, that was my decision. I wanted to do my 22 and I wanted to get up their ranks as fast as possible um, yeah. and be the role model for the females that are coming in that I had. Um, so, yeah. Um, but during my uh, training to promote... I was on an adventurous activity uh, training course and I injured my back. Um, from that injury, I honestly thought it was just a pulled muscle at the beginning um, and I didn't go and get it looked at straight away. Um, but I then went to sick bay and said, look, this is hurting. I need something. Um, nothing really got done. And then I went to hospital no, no. Um, I mean, when when you said you you thought you'd crack on, so to speak, when you first got your back injured, then you recognised actually this might be a little bit more serious. So you went to sick bay, our med centre, and said, "Yeah, I think I think I've done something that might be serious." Yeah, and the reason why I wanted to crack on, I will say that is because I had courses booked in, so. Yeah. 
my leadership course was booked in. I had other courses and then I wanted to get on this crew to deploy. So yeah. I was on a tight frame. So I was like, I'll be all right. You know, cord muscle, everyone's had them. Um, no big deal here. And then it was after a, a little while I realized actually this is quite serious. This isn't going away. This is hurting every day and everything yeah. I do. So I went to sick bay. They said, oh, it's only a pulled muscle. Is to paracetamol and ibuprofen as, you, as everyone does. Oh, yeah, the ibuprofen um, tablets. Yeah, smarties. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the magic pills, as they would say. Um, they all sold everything. Um, but it didn't go away and there was no way around it. Um, I ended up having to go to hospital um and they did mri scans and everything and they actually signed me off for six weeks um went back to my boss and said oh, i've been signed off for six weeks they were like look that's not doable you can have two weeks and then you need to go on this course i was like okay so i was receiving physio at the time um and i went on this course i was still receiving physio when i was on this course so that was okay um but once i went back up to faz lane after my courses um, I was put on a crew to do another um, assessment period before we deployed. Um, I went to sickbay again or med centre and said, look, I'm not in the right med category to do this. Yeah. I still need physio. Like, I'm in still quite a lot of pain. And they, I have to say, they basically said, this, this is what you've got to go do. So I went and done that. Um, did all my assessment period, got through all of that was in still quite a bit of pain but I was working through it I honestly thought it was just a pulled muscle still and it just hadn't healed properly and it was just taking a while oh, oh, um, and over, over what time period was this was it like so a I week injured, two weeks months no so I was injured in the September 2019 and right. I started the assessment period in February 2020 right okay um this assessment period's months month long so I did that and then we were ready to deploy in March. March right. 20 was when COVID kicked off. Yeah. Um, and everything was very heated. Um, I You can't just walk into sickbay now. The phones are always chock-blocked. Um, there was no way to get hold of the relevant people. Um, so on that, I was deployed on the wrong medical category for me to go to Bahrain. Um and I don't know if you know much about mine warfare ships, but they're actually flat bottomed ships. Yeah. So right. yeah. when the sea is rough, the sea is rough. Um, and wearing body armor and lifting ammunition and lifting sea foxes. Um, just what you need with a bad back. Is, is exactly what we need. And I was very new in my role as well. And I didn't yeah. want to be that guy. I just wanted to prove myself to say, look, this is what I can do. I studied very hard to get there and i want to prove myself you know um to my bosses and everyone and, involved and plus the fact you're you want to be a shining example of what someone who's ready for promotion needs to be and i really did and i had my lads below me now um and i wanted to show them what they could do you know in this stressful time of covid as well so there was a lot of uncertainty and then we're deploying and most of these lads, it was their first deployment. Yeah. You know, so it was quite difficult to navigate. And it was a very, very long sail out. It was about four and a half months from Scotland to Bahrain. And as we were going into countries, they were shutting down due to COVID. It was 
it was very stressful period. Um, and I don't think it gets enough credit almost because you just live it every yeah. day. So for you, it wasn't really a big thing at the time. But now I look back, actually, it was kind of a stressful period. And, you know, you had your family back at home in lockdown, not knowing what was going on. Um, and now you're away and there's not much else you can do. Um, and my pain was getting worse and worse. There was days that I struggled to get out of bed, but I still had to, obviously, because I had a job role to do. Um, and, it, yeah, it was just getting worse and worse. The pain was unbearable. Um, and luckily, when we got to Bahrain, I was seen by a doctor straight away off of um, one of the RFA ships. And he put me into Kazivakni home straight away. Um, yeah, there was, he was like, I don't understand how you did it, but there was no way to get me off ship prior to getting to Bahrain because of COVID. There was no way I could have gone to hospital. There was no way that I could have been seen by any other medical personnel because of my water. You stop between a rock and a hard place, really, aren't you? Yeah. And on a mine warfare ship, the highest medical professional on board is a level three first aider. Um, so, right, so he won't be doing any open heart surgery then, will he? Oh, he's he, they're not doing a lot to um help medically, you know, they do the best that they can. <clears throat> and my coxswain at the time, he was sending all the emails that he needed to send. He did understand the pain that I was in, he did get it. Um, and he did everything he could on his end, but there was just nothing that could have been done. I shouldn't have been deployed in the first place. And therefore, yeah. we got where we were. Um, but I was kind of backed within two weeks anyway, and that was pretty good with COVID as it was going. Yeah. Um, managed to get me on a civilian flight um, back to London, where I was picked up by my mum. But, yeah, that four and a half months is a complete blur to me now um, due to the fact of being in so much pain. And... Now I look back, I realise that actually that was the last bit of my career then. That that was me done. Um, obviously, I didn't know that at the time. But it is, a, it is slightly sad, you know. You look back, You, I had decided I wanted to do my 22. Um, and that injury really sent me off. It, and it wasn't something huge. I wasn't in a massive car accident or anything like that. I literally just landed wrong on my back and that was it. That was my day. Um, but since coming back from... Bahrain then so once I was casually backed I went home to be cared for by my mum and wait for advice really from the doctors because they didn't want me on base because Covid was rife yeah um and they couldn't get me to Scotland so we then had to decide where what base I was going to um so there was a lot of moving parts in that journey short journey between being casually backed and and it must have been an extremely worrying time for your mum and your sister as well. Yeah, my mum and my sister were extremely worried. They knew the amount of pain I was in, um, but they didn't all at the same time. You yeah. know, I I would call home and explain, actually, like, I'm really struggling today. Like, it hurts to stand. Um, my legs feel funny. Um, my arms feel heavy you know I've got this massive headache um all the time um so they did know the symptoms that I was having um 
but they didn't know the extent until I got home, um, <clears throat> until mum got me in that car. She didn't realise. And my mum's a nurse as well. Oh, so wow. <clears throat> um, once she saw me, once she picked me up from the airport, that's when she realised, actually, this could be quite bad. Um, <clears throat> and then I got home and I was pretty much bed bound for a good month. Um, looking up to the ceiling um, because they couldn't get me in to see anyone in yeah. in that month and no one knew what was wrong so it was pretty much stay still until we can figure it out <laughs> yeah and, and, and I, I know I can see that it's still em emotional and raw for you and, and, and I, I totally get where you're coming from <clears throat> because when I had my incident which you know about yeah they did know what I'd done. They did know what I'd done because it was quite clear from the X-rays that my neck was broken. Well, I get what you mean about just lying there, stirring, and and just not knowing what's happening and understanding that you got a serious issue. It's just you're not sure what the future holds, what your military career holds. What's going to happen if? What's going to happen if that happens? What's going to happen if this happens? And and why am I in pain? <clears throat> am I? Why should I be in pain? Because I'm a roughy toughy military person, and this shouldn't be happening to me. And all that stuff's going on, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it was quite difficult in the why is this happening? Um, but I was still under the illusion that once. I'll be home for three months and I'll be back to playing. Yeah, I was honestly yeah. still under that illusion that, yeah, I'll be seen by a doctor, they'll figure out what's wrong, um, do a bit of physio and then off back I go. I was completely certain that that was going to happen. Medical discharge had never even crossed my mind at that point. Um, so I was in still quite high spirits at this time. Um, I know that my mum found it very difficult Um basically because she was caring for me um, and to see her youngest child in pain is just never good. Um, and my sister found it very difficult just to see me like that as well, um, mm. as we're all very close. So I know it was a bit more of a difficult situation for them um, than it was really for me at the time. Yes, I was in a load of pain, but that was as far as that went. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just annoyed that I got Kazivax back. I wanted to do the whole trip, you know? So other than a bit annoyed and a bit frustrated, I honestly thought I'd be back out in three months. Yeah, and ov and obviously looking, looking at how you would have felt, you'd just been promoted before you went on this uh, tour. And then you have the Kazivax back. So there would have been, perhaps I'm putting words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong, there would have been a, a sort of feeling of guilt that you'd left yeah. your you'd left your subordinates without a leader, and and you were ashamed, maybe. Yeah, I think it, would, it did hold that. You know, it's that disappointment and that wanting to be there for them and with them. Um, we are lucky in the sense of mine warfare ships that there is two leading hands on board, but then it was that guilt of the other leading hand is now going to have to take all the responsibility um that we usually have do you know um so it was guilt and there were it was very disappointment like a big disappointment for me to come home but 
I also knew I was no good out there either. You yep. know, I I could hardly stand up for longer than five minutes at this point. Yep. So for me, it was very, it, I knew it was needed for me yep. to come home and figure out what was going on because I could not receive the care that I needed out there. So you've gone through what I would class as the four stages of an incident, an injury, shock, denial, right? This isn't happening to me. When did it when did it start to become upset or anger or um, emotion of negativity? When did that happen during that process? So I was kind of back in September and I started to receive medical attention. Uh November, December time, um, on and off. So it was about once a fortnight I went and saw the physio. And that's where the emotional came. Because with my injury that happened, because it was left for so long untreated, I developed hypersensitivity. So my skin feels pain when it's not painful. Um, And it's that neuropathic pain and hypersensitivity that really hit the emotions because it's that lack of understanding of well it's not real so why is it hurt um and that's when it became that emotional battle for me um and i think it comes back to the whole military mindset of now nah, I'm, I'm hard I'm, i can deal with that i'm fine you know and actually the understanding of I was left for so long that this is now a result of that. Um, Hit me quite hard, you know. Um, And the physio then couldn't carry on his his, uh, physio because he was like, I'm not trained to deal with this, so you need to go somewhere else. Um, And that is when I was um, handed over to Stamford Hall Rehabilitation Centre. Which... which is the replacement from what used to be the uh, Headley Court. Headley Court. Now, hypersensitivity, that that can be like someone sticking pins in you, can't it? You know, it's yeah. It's a really, so, really intense pain. Yeah, so it basically just feels so wearing a t-shirt, for example, will then uh it will have a painful response or if you brush up against something, it can be yeah. like you're being stabbed in the back, or yeah. it's a very it's very different for everyone, but it's basically the sense of things feel different than what they do. So now you're in Stam- Stamford Hall. What's going on there, and what is your thought process going through now? So. Before I actually went to Stanford Hall physically, I was receiving uh, Zoom calls by the uh, physios and occupational therapy there just to assess where I actually was and try and assess where I needed to get to, basically. The plan was to still keep me in the military. Um, I was still under no illusion of a medical discharge yet at this point, and I went to my first residential there in July 2021. Yep. Um, two weeks of physio and occupational therapy and hydrotherapy to try and get people back to where they need to be. Um, I oh, so so they, they threw a lot at you then? Physio, yeah. occupational and hydrotherapy, yeah. 
yeah so it was a two-week course um and it was there was a few people there just with upper limb injuries um and it was very intense you know and it was very emotional because they did hit you with a lot of realism of how long they really think that this is going to last and how long they really think that you're going to be able to recover and if you're going to be able to recover at all and like I said at this point I was still I'm going to stay in the military I'm going to be absolutely fine um and at the end of my resident my first residential there I got the news that this possibly could never go away um and I'm looking at a good 10 year stint of this with little to no improvement at least and how how did that make you feel? And the reason I asked that question is I remember when I went to see the clinical psychologist at the spinal unit that I was in at Southport. And the first thing he said to me, he said, you, you're probably not going to walk again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's your opinion. And I respect your opinion. Let's see what I can do. So when you're told this, where, where's your mind going and what's racing through your mind? So at this point, I was still very much in denial. I describe this process almost like grief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your seven stages of grief, and it's not uh, as easy as people think of, oh, you're just sad one day, and then you get over it, and then you go and yeah. get better. It's You know, there's different things in this journey that I went on this injury where I would restart the grief process all over again almost, yeah. and... I was very angry when they told me that and very under the illusion that actually that's not going to happen. I'll be absolutely fine. I'll like, give me a few more months and I'll be back out at fighting, you know? Um, And that was my own sense of, I didn't understand what was wrong. Um, I was under the illusion that it was still just something to do with my muscle and I'll be absolutely fine. And that's my own fault because I wasn't listening to them. Mm. Um, I was taking on the advice of the physios and the occupational therapy, but I wouldn't actually ever listen to them when they said, this is what's wrong and this is what isn't wrong. Um, Because I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm absolutely fine. Yeah, let's crack on. I've only only, uh, caught my nail. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely fine um, and in denial. Um, so I left that residential in the very much, I'll be absolutely fine. Don't know what you're on about. I'll be I'll be fine. Um, and less than three months uh, later, I went on another residential with them to try and fix this. Uh, this one was a little bit more intense as I'd already been before, so it wasn't as much generalised. I was taken with my physio a lot and my occupational therapist a lot um, and worked quite well one-to-one with them. Um, and this is where I do have to praise the military of the actual care I did receive from my physio and occupational therapist was outstanding and they really did want the best for me. So if I wanted to stay in the military, they were on that 100%, but they were very realist with me. Yeah. Um they couldn't give me the exact answers of why things were happening, but they could tell me that this is because an injury had built up and I hadn't received the care that I needed to then. So we're almost working against time. Mm. Um, What was a good way to explain it to me in the sense that there is a possibility of getting back, but never to the exact same place I was before all this happened. And 
I was still 20, 21 at this time. So I was like, nah, this won't last forever. I'll be fine. I'm just like, you know, I'm young still, you know, it'll, I'll be able to get over this. Um, but I think towards the end of my second residential, I came to a clear understanding that maybe my military career could be over. Yeah. Um, and that's where I went for my first uh, medical discharge. Um, so my board almost. Yeah. Um, so a few months after this, I think it was late 21 i'm not overly sure on dates to be honest it was a little bit of a blur for myself yeah um i went for my first medical board and i sat down in front of five medical professionals and i said i want to stay in these are the reasons why i want to stay in and they have to say yes or no they read through your medical records um they're in front of you and they have a discussion with you to discuss how positive you are in the process um that you're going to be able to get back to the fight in fit um and then they decide but i have to say i had a, i was very lucky i had a very nice man um who was doing my medical board with me and he just said that the care that i received was unacceptable and he would like to give me an extra six months to enable me to go for more care at Stanford Hall rehabilitation center he knew that I wasn't going to get better. I knew deep down that I wasn't going to get any better, but that six months gave me that little bit of hope that there was a possibility that I would stay. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's all I needed. I was like, yeah, I'll stay, I'll stay, I'll stay. Went home to my mum and she was like, I thought we were leaving. We were on that mindset of leaving. And I was like, no, I'm now in the mindset of staying. <laughs> she right. was like, oh, you're like a bouncy ball at the moment. Um, and it really is. It's so uncertain. Um, and for myself, when I always thought about leaving the military, it, because of this injury, it was like, what am I going to do now? Yeah. You know, it takes me back to that. I don't want to be sat in an office nine to five like I didn't want to do in school. So it took me straight back to that emotion of feeling trapped and not having the ability to choose my own path. And I feel as though that's where mentally I was a bit low. That's where it hit me. And it went, I don't actually have choice of where my future is going to go. And that choice being taken away from someone is horrible. So you obviously had a big struggle during that period in late 2021. Fast forward, I mean, by all means, fill in the, the bits in between because there would have been a struggle and further treatment. What happened towards the time when the next phase of reality struck? So... My next phase of reality actually happened when I re reconnected with a friend who now happens to be my partner. And we met at Stanford Hall. Um, and he was going on his own medical discharge journey from the army. And I was going on my medical discharge journey from the Navy. And we reconnected at the right time to realize actually we're both leaving we both didn't want to leave um but this is a positive this is the reason why we are supposed to be doing what we're doing and 
I took then my medical discharge in July, June, July, I did my last medical board, um, put my uniform on for the last time, went there, did my medical board and thank you for your service uh, was the handshake I got at the end. And that, how and, did you feel at that date and what year was that? Uh, so that was 2023, June. Yeah. Um, and I felt good. I felt positive. I had come to the realisation that the world had bigger things now. I was clearly meant to leave the military then and I was clearly meant to leave how I left um, with this medical discharge. Um, and that will take me on further to where I am now. But my mindset at the time was... It was positive, but it was still fearful, you know. That well, and at this point is probably as good a good a point as any to ask, how do you deal with failure? Failure for me, I used to take it really hard. I wanted to be the best at everything, and when I couldn't be the best, I did struggle. Um, and that was something that I had to overcome very quickly in my adulthood because I had to realise that I wasn't going to be the best at everything. But at that point in my life, especially with the medical discharge going on, I realised failure for me was not failure. It was just a lesson that I got to learn from. Um, and the failures and mistakes, what everyone does make in their lives, makes them who they are today and allows them to make the decisions that they will make going forward. And I think that's the best way for me to think about things and the best way for people to think about things. Because if you always look as your life is full of failures instead of lessons, your mindset is just going to be off. You're going to be down. You're going to be, I'm a failure because I failed this many times in my life. Whereas I can stand on a pedestal and say, actually, these are all the lessons I got to learn from. And these are now the decisions that I make because I learned this. Which is a great way to look at it, uh, uh, because it took me a while to, to discover that as well. And, and I suppose it's about the mentors and the coaches that you have, because I, I recognise fail now is first attempt in learning. Yeah, I love that. that. That's how I look at it. I've said it before, and I dare say I'll say it again, uh, because <laughs> anyone who thinks that they can go through life just having success is probably <laughs> slightly devoid of any sort of common sense. And also, without failure, there's no, so, so, uh, there's no contrast for success. I almost feel sorry for the people that think that they have, they've never gone through things, you know? They've never failed at anything. Because and how do you become a better person? How mm. do you grow? You know, if you're always on a one level because you've always done things amazing and you've never really failed at anything, how do you grow from that? How do you get yeah. better? How do you yeah. teach yeah. from your mistakes, you know? And it does come back to that mentor, mentorship almost. And I will always say that the first mentor in my life would always be my mum. Yeah, you oh, know? Wow. that's a great relationship. Oh, yeah, more than anything. She's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and and so you you really think that coach and mentor relationship is great, and, and how important do you think it is having a good social network, which you had a strong one in in the navy, and also a business network? Because I know you attended uh, 
an event that I that I organise. And how do you think that's important? Networking is the most important thing in business, hands down. And I feel as though people in the military, they look at the military like this brotherhood and this family. And actually on the outside world, that's what networking is. It's that mm. brotherhood. It's that helping each other out. It's that um, I've got a friend that knows this and you can learn this from me because I messed this up or, you know. So yeah. actually the military is very good at networking. They just call it something different. <laughs> yeah. and They call it know, a buddy-buddy system, I suppose. It is, you know, and it is just one big networking event because you'll always meet people from different paths of life that are better at something than you or can teach you something that you don't know and vice versa. Yeah. So, but when you do tell them about networking events or the importance of network, they're a bit standoffish. And I'm like, you've been doing this the whole time of your career. Yeah. Hey, numpty, you've been doing this forever. <laughs> Come on, it's just called something it. different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so right, you've had the realisation that you're not going to stay in the military. Uh, you come home, uh, your mum greets you, your sister greets you, big smiling faces, lovely cuddle. What's going on? Um, so from this moment now, um, I so I got discharged in June. I had four months to sort my life out. Um, I actually had five, actually, so I was the lucky one. Um, but I went to sort my life out, and from that, I created my own company with my business partners uh, of Genesis Group Global. Um, this is fabulous. And I, a fabulous company. Yep, uh, run by veterans for veterans and Blue Light Community. Um, but so they own Genesis Group Global. And I created Genesis Group Media Marketing and Recruitment with them. Um, and we went ahead with that. Um, but the ethos of the company is always to give back to veterans and the Blue Light community. And that brings us on to our creation of the Armed Forces Business Centre that opens on the 1st of March. Um, that's our grand opening. And that is a hub for veterans, Blue Light members, serving members also, um, and their families to come in and get a holistic approach of business, welfare, property, um, and a place to really feel as though they're welcome um, and no one's going to judge them. Um, because I think for me, with my discharge, I would have been set up so much better that if when I was serving, I was taught about property, buy a house, rent it out whilst you're in the military when you don't need it. You know, there's plenty of side hustles, but they're not really side hustles. They're passive income that yeah. when you get that medical discharge and you've got four months to leave, it's all right because your bills are covered by that passive income. You know, your family is still going to have food on that table. And that's important. Um, and mindset, 100%. You know, I, it's it's easy to turn around and say that I'm positive and I'm in a positive mindset and I'm going to do positive things and everything in my life is positively okay. But to have someone actually guide you and how to use that mindset properly and know that it's not always about being happy and positive and only feeling good about things. It's actually the mindset of being able to use negative things that happen to you in a positive light. 
And actually, yeah, you're dead right, because I'm coming down to your opening. I'm also going to be speaking at your speaker event on the following week, which yeah. is great, and thank you for the invitation. How can people get in touch with you and where can, where can they look to find out more about the Genesis Group? Um, so we're on all social media platforms um, and the easiest way to find myself to be able to signpost you to the relevant relevant people would be to find me on LinkedIn. It's just Robin Lockwood. Um, LinkedIn is our main social media platform um, and the Armed Forces Business Centre social media platforms are launching next week. So you'll just be able to put that into any of the Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn and more. <laughs> That's the Armed Forces Business Centre on those social media platforms. And then LinkedIn, Robin Lockwood, they can yes. link up with you. Uh, and you're, you're based in? Uh, Colchester. Colchester, yep. And and I love the ethos uh, because I, I recognise, because uh, I spend a lot of my time on business, business structure and helping, just the same as your ethos and company is. And I know we're going to be working together a lot now in the future. And, and I do, I do agree that the military spend a lot of time taking the civilian out of you and then building you up as a military person. And unfortunately, it doesn't always happen in reverse. They do not take the military out of you and build you up as a civilian. One, because they probably don't know how to, and two, they haven't got the time, really. So I think that what you're doing is great. Thank you. And... What I'd like to know is how valuable, looking back at your military career, how valuable do you think and transferable are the military skills to civilian life? Now that you started, because you only recently started, so you know how it's how you're able to use those values and skills. The transferable skills are like no other. Um, the things we learn within the military are the things that civilians spend thousands on to learn. Mm-hmm. Um I did a public speaking course um, for a few thousand and realized actually everything that I learned in there were the things I learned in the military for free. <laughs> um, yeah. They were paying me to learn that. So yeah. there's the public speaking, there's the teamwork, there's the management skills, because whether you like it or not, you can be a senior AB or need in hand, and that's media management in civilian world. Yeah, yeah. Um, the communication skills, the ability to work under time pressure, you know, all of these skills are transferable. But the thing that is hard about it is knowing how to word it into a civilian way of speaking. Um, and it's really is just that knowledge behind you and someone who's done it before. And that's what we want to foster really we we are the people that have done it before and we want to help people going forward there's so many gaps in the system at the moment that aren't being covered and i can say that from a real time experience i left the military mid-september 2023 and i can say that fresh off the off the shop floor that it's not done correctly yet and we need them resources around to ensure that every serving member and veteran doesn't get left behind um, because there's more to civilian world than writing a CV. 
Yeah. And I'm totally with you because I've spent tens of thousands because uh, I've been out a little bit longer than you on on courses. And, and many of them, like I've been on public speaker courses or how to do stuff, and I, re I recognize that actually I'm learning someone else's way of doing it when the way that I was taught in the military was perfectly okay. All right, I picked up a few tips. And that's what... And that's why I'm on I'm on the mission to make sure that I use what I've learned and you use what you learned. So together we can create something that we deliver to veterans, knowing what they need and what the what the concerns are and what worries them, rather than coming into a an environment where someone's running it who doesn't understand ex-military people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why we love the fact that we're founded and run by veterans. You know, there's that at least, it's that one thing in common that allows you to open up, to allows you that ability to talk to someone like they know what you mean. You know, that fearfulness, that hesitant to put that, chit in to leave the military because you're yeah. scared because you've had that security you know it's very difficult and I feel as though people just need to be more prepared for the outside world because it happens to everyone yeah. everyone leaves the military so why do we talk about it's this thing that only some people do you know everyone leaves everyone's got to be a civilian at some point you know and I look forward to us working together. And before we sign off, I'd just like to ask you the one last question, the Colombo question. What's the one top tip you give to someone leaving the military or has already left, left the military and wants to get better or to someone who's listening who likes and supports the people who are in the military? What's the one tip, top tip you give them for success? Surround yourself with the people that you aspire to be because you should never be the best person in the room. You should never be the smartest person in the room because you're never going to get anywhere if you stop learning. Yeah. And life doesn't stop. You know, you've got to keep pushing forward. You've got to keep growing. It's just like the rank system. You know, you always want to be better. You always want to get somewhere. So surround yourself with the, the people you aspire to be. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for sharing your amazing journey and the trials tribulations and and how you got through stuff i found it so interesting so thanks a lot you take care and have a brilliant day you too joe thank you so much